This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, gender essentialism, and discussion of characters' religious beliefs. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 311. Hello, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction and share the latest on my writing endeavors. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 52 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Brian and Fiona have a score to settle with their old mentor, Victor Hincavos. The former MID agent ran an operation against the Psy Collective on behalf of their archenemies, the Vampire Syndicate. In the process, Victor killed Dell and Trace, two of Brian and Fiona's longtime friends and teammates. Victor then framed another telekinetic for the murders, took the money the syndicate had paid him for the job, and broke all ties with the collective. As if that weren't bad enough, a recently recovered memory from her childhood showed Fiona that Victor had been responsible for her mother's death as well and had delivered the now-orphaned Fiona to the Collective in exchange for a reward. The Elders have tolerated Victor for years now as a useful monster, one they were sure they could control. But now he slipped his leash. Brian was initially reluctant to join the hunt for Victor, but a call from Elder Miriam Bakhtivar changed his mind. Miriam told the Summer Cell that she has recovered Abby Preston, the telepathic prodigy who ran away with Victor almost seven months ago. They know Victor is going to come looking for Abby, probably with the aid of magic. Miriam wants to use the girl as bait to set a trap for him, and she wants Brian and Fiona to help her take him down. With encouragement from Fiona and Rebecca, Brian agreed to the plan. What the Summer Cell doesn't realize is that Miriam is lying to them. Abby has run away from Victor, and Victor is coming to look for her, but she's not with Miriam. She's across town at Eastside General, the hospital where Danny and Sasha work. Abby revealed herself to Danny and checked into the hospital under an assumed name. When Sasha told Danny that Miriam was setting a trap for Victor, Daniel reassumed control of their shared body. He's got his own score to settle with Victor, who tricked him into helping with that mission for the Syndicate. Leaving the now-anonymous Abby in Sasha's protection, Daniel headed out to join Brian and Fiona. But none of our heroes have guessed the truth. Miriam is setting a trap not for Victor, but for Brian and Fiona. Malcolm Ardvalos has commanded her to capture the two telepaths and bind them to her service, as punishment for their role in a costly raid against one of his holdings. 
Miriam hates Malcolm and doesn't want to do it, but the vampiric blood bond has given her no choice but to obey. Still, Malcolm's commands overlooked a few important details. Tiny ones, but if she plays her cards right, they might still be enough to save Brian and Fiona. Even as she leads them into her trap, Miriam prays to her goddess, Let me fail again. Just one last time. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 52 Brian cast a wary eye around him as he and Fiona rode the escalator down to the subway station beneath Hutchins Tower. It was well after rush hour, and Monday night wasn't a party night for most people, so the station was lightly populated. They walked to a spot near the center of the plaza, stopping between a trash can and a set of benches. He scanned the faces of the passengers exiting through the turnstiles, but he didn't see any sign of Miriam. He glanced at Fiona. Anything? Her nostrils flared, and her brow furrowed in a moment of intense concentration. After half a second, though, she smoothed her features and shook her head, her expression bland. Nothing, she murmured. Brian frowned, but before he could say anything, he sensed the touch of a familiar mind. Thank you for coming. Brian almost jumped out of his skin. He spun around and saw Miriam approaching already less than three meters away. She wore a long, hooded cloak of nondescript gray, a common enough sight in Metamore, particularly in cold weather. Brian hadn't hurt her mind at all until she touched him, and he was sure they must have walked right past her. Damn, he thought in amazement, that is a really good mind shield. He hadn't meant to transmit that thought, but Miriam gave him a small smile nonetheless. You don't get to be my age without learning a few things, she said, her psychic voice tinged with dry amusement. The emotion was short-lived, though, and her smile faded almost as soon as it had come. Did you bring weapons? A few, Brian said, but we don't exactly keep an arsenal at home. I have my gun and a couple of combat knives, but honestly, I don't think they're going to do much good against Victor. I hope you've got more of a plan than you told us over the phone. I do, Miriam said. I'll explain once we get there. I don't want to risk anyone overhearing us. The safe house is psi-shielded to keep the girl hidden, so we can speak freely once we get there. Brian nodded. Where are we headed? He asked, switching to verbal speech as he raised his psi-shields. If Miriam was concerned about telepathic eavesdroppers, talking was safer than transmitting. Miriam gestured toward the east. Connolly Tower, she said, as she too reined in her thoughts. There's a factory at street level that we own through a shell corporation. We'll take the commuter tunnel that connects the two towers. Brian took a slow breath and let it out. All right, let's do it then. He headed toward the sign for the commuter tunnels, 
then stopped when he realized that Miriam and Fiona hadn't joined him. He looked back and saw the two women gazing at each other, their expressions grave. For a long moment, neither of them said anything, neither in speech nor through telepathy, but Brian could sense the spark of a connection between them. He walked back toward them, but he still had to strain to hear it when Miriam finally spoke. This is the hardest thing I have ever asked you to do, she said. Can I trust that you will see it through to the end, no matter what? Stiffly, Fiona nodded once. I will, she said, her voice rough with suppressed emotion. I swear it. Brian was astonished to hear the pain in her voice. Not astonished that there was pain, but that her ability to disguise it was slipping. Digging up those old memories must have had more of an impact than she lets on. He put a comforting hand on her shoulder, and the moment between the two women was broken. Fiona lowered her head and brushed at her eyes. Fiona was crying? We really do need to get moving, Brian said. Wait for me! Brian turned and stared as Daniel Sharabi leapt down the last few steps of the escalator and came jogging toward them. It was clear he was dressed for a fight. He wore close-fitting, soft-cotton pants, a black turtleneck, a leather jacket, and army boots, with nothing bulky or dangling that might trip him up or slow him down. His long hair was bound into a ponytail and tucked up under a plain-knitted cap so no one could get a handle on it but it was the look of steely determination in his eyes that truly showed that Daniel was not kidding around. Daniel, Fiona said, her voice sharp, what are you doing here? Taking care of some unfinished business, Daniel said. Sasha told me you're going after Victor. I'm here to help. Of all of them, Miriam seemed to be the most taken aback. Do you even have a weapon? Daniel bowed his head in a gesture of respect, then spread his hands. I was one of Victor's best students, Elder Bakhtivar. My whole body is a weapon. He gestured toward the small of his back. I don't own a gun. Not that it would do any good against Victor, anyway. But I did bring three knives in my tonfa sticks. I've been well trained with all of them. This is out of the question, Fiona growled. Go home, Daniel. It is too dangerous. All right, that's enough. Daniel stepped in close to her and looked down at her deceptively small frame, pointing a finger squarely between her breasts. You want to say I've got crappy powers? Fine. I'll be the first to agree with you. You want to say that I'm too weak to be a father? I don't like it, but I'll go along with that, too. But I earned top marks in combat arts all through school, and I did it without cheating like you do. Fiona's lip curled at this, but she said nothing. Daniel lowered his head to look her in the eye. While you were out stealing secrets and taking down drug lords, I spent the last five years as Victor's sparring partner. I know how he moves, how he fights. I can't counter his teak, but I know how to keep him off balance so he can't use it. So don't you dare tell me to go home and hide like some idiot child. I can do this. And if you'll use that logical mind that everyone's always talking about, you'll realize you need me. Fiona grimaced and looked away. Brian opened his mouth, then closed it again. 
he was torn between the truth of Daniel's words and the desire to keep his friend out of the fight. For all his skill in the Somnok, Daniel had managed to avoid becoming a killer. Brian wanted to preserve that last bit of innocence inside him, to spare him the inner turmoil that came with taking a life. Killing, even for the best of reasons, always took something from you, and you could never really understand what that something was until it was gone. Still, Daniel was his own man. Brian didn't have the right to make his choices for him. And, like it or not, they would need the help. Fiona met Brian's eyes, apparently having come to the same conclusion. Very well, she said. She stepped past him and Brian and headed for the entrance to the commuter tunnel. Daniel looked over at Brian, his surprise evident. Wow, that was laconic even for her. She's had a rough day, Brian said. He turned to Miriam. Elder, after you. Miriam glanced at Daniel, then nodded and followed after Fiona. Daniel fell in alongside Brian as they took up the rear. You know, a little support back there might have been nice, Bry. Brian shrugged. You didn't need my help. You had logic on your side. If I'd spoken up, Fiona would have taken it as an order from her commanding officer, and then she wouldn't have had to admit she was wrong. Daniel snorted. <laughs> Very well. That's one gracious admission there. It's Fiona. Take what you can get, Brian said dryly. He glanced sideways at Daniel, then added, How does Danny feel about this? Daniel closed his eyes briefly. She's supportive. She knows why I have to do this, but she prefers not to get involved herself. I think the different hormones cut down on her aggression level. He winked at Brian. Most of the time, anyway. Daniel, Brian said slowly, I really don't want to know. Is everyone in position? Sasha asked. A wave of confirmations came back through the link. Sasha allowed herself to relax a little. Okay, good. If you see anything suspicious, let me know right away. If this guy shows up, I want him tagged and on the floor before he can even touch a weapon. Don't worry, Lieutenant, we can handle it, one of the guards said. If he tries to start anything, he's going to regret it. Sasha closed her eyes and wished, not for the first time, that she were dealing with MID operatives instead of hospital guards. Collective-run hospitals stocked as much firepower as they could get away with, a precautionary measure in case the Vampire Syndicate ever decided to go after a convalescing telepath. Unfortunately, all of the Hive's best warriors went into MID service, so security teams like this one were composed of second stringers. Or worse. Don't get cocky, she admonished them. We don't know who this guy is, so assume the worst and deal with him accordingly. I don't want anyone getting hurt because they got sloppy. She received a second wave of acknowledgments, more sullen than the first. Sasha pushed the link to the back of her mind and turned her attention back to the hallway in front of her. She had just passed into the OBGYN ward, where a familiar, dark-haired woman was leaning up against the wall outside one of the urgent care rooms. She had a clipboard in one hand and was rubbing the bridge of her nose with the other. "'Hey, Morgan,' Sasha said." 
smiling sympathetically as she approached. Long shift. Morgan made a disgusted sound. Twenty-two hours and counting. I will be ecstatic when this residency is over. Sasha wrinkled her nose and looked around at the nondescript walls. This isn't even your bead, is it? I thought you were in clinical pathology. I am, Morgan said dryly. But a woman came in here last week with umbilical cord prolapse and a case of Stafford's fever. Half of the residents in this wing were infected while they tried to save the child. She shrugged. I did a rotation through here during my internship, so they asked me to help. A sigh. Not that I'm of much use for something like this. Sasha poked her head around the door frame and looked into the room. A pregnant teenager sat propped up on one of the beds near the back, flanked by windows on either side. She seemed to be asleep, but her face did not look peaceful. A fetal heart monitor was hooked up next to the usual equipment that measured the girl's own heart rate and blood pressure. Danny said the baby is having visions? Morgan chuffed a quiet laugh. That's what the girl says. For all I know, she may be the one who's mad. You'd know more about it than I would, honestly. I've been here nearly four years, and I still don't think I understand your people. She shook her head. I gave her a mild sedative. Not enough to do her any good, but with any luck it will help calm the child. Sasha nodded, reaching up to finger her yew-tree crucifix. She whispered a prayer for the girl and her baby before turning back to Morgan. You look terrible, Sasha said, putting a gentle hand on the taller woman's arm. Why don't you go get some rest? I'll stay with her and call you if anything changes. Morgan gave her a grateful smile and handed over the clipboard. Thanks, Sasha. I also have two postpartums in room 12, but they shouldn't give you any trouble. It's not that there's really that much to do. They just don't have the people to cover the shifts right now. Perfect time for you to grab some shut-eye, then, Sasha said, returning the smile. Go find a desk to hide under for a couple hours. I can handle this. I owe you one, Morgan said, looking back over her shoulder as she left. I'll be in Timson's office if you need me. Sasha waved in acknowledgement, then looked down at the clipboard. Morgan's thin, precise printing listed each of the patients under her care, their room assignments and reason for being there, any medications and the times when they had been administered, and anything else that Morgan had thought relevant to their treatment. After looking in on the two postpartum women and verifying that they were asleep, Sasha went back to room 14 and sat down next to Jenny Bloggs. The girl seemed to be reasonably healthy, a little overweight, but that was hardly unusual with pregnancy. The fresh bruises around her neck, though, were proof enough of her need for asylum. Sasha couldn't tell what had been used to choke the girl. It didn't look like the man had used his bare hands, but forensic analysis wasn't her specialty. Whatever the weapon had been, Sasha suspected that the girl was damned lucky to be alive. Fresh empathy stabbed at her, and Sasha thought of Abby Preston, huddled in a safe house somewhere, while Miriam used her as bait to lure in Victor. It was a risky gamble, one that Sasha hoped would pay off. Granted, having Miriam, Fiona, Brian, and Daniel to protect her was probably better than having the entire staff of Eastside's security force, 
But Sasha suspected that Victor Hincavos was a hell of a lot more dangerous than whoever Jenny was running from. She bowed her head and closed her eyes. Keep them safe, father, she murmured, touching her crucifix again. Let your angels set a guard around them. Bring them safely home. She fell silent then, not sure what else to say. After a moment, another voice spoke from the bed beside her. Does he ever answer you? Sasha looked up into a pair of serious brown eyes. The girl's eyelids were heavy, but she regarded Sasha with a look of thoughtful curiosity. Sometimes, Sasha said. Not always the way you expect, though. Eli's voice is quiet. Sometimes you don't know it was him until you look back on it later. The girl seemed to consider that. So how do you know it's really him? Maybe things just happen, and you tell yourself stories later to make sense of it. Her eyes grew distant, troubled. You can make yourself believe all sorts of things if you want them bad enough. Sasha gave her a sad smile. Like believing that the man you loved is a good person, when you really should have known better? Jenny focused on her again, the pain etched deeply on her face. Yes, she whispered. Sasha took her hand and squeezed it. The girl had her size shields up, but Sasha offered her what comfort and reassurance she could. It was obvious that Jenny had been deeply hurt and betrayed, maybe more than once. Sasha felt a quiet certainty take root inside her. This is why I'm here tonight. People fail us, Jenny, she said gently. Eli doesn't. I'm not going to say what happened to you as Eli's will, but I do believe he meant for you to come here. He doesn't always spare us from the evil that people do to us, but he can redeem the pain if we'll let him. He can use it to do something good, to make us better people. The girl's face screwed up, holding back tears. How can you know that? Because it's what he does. Sasha took off her crucifix and held it up for Jenny to see. My lord Yashua died on a tree like this one. The Sweelman soldiers hung him there like a criminal until he gave up his spirit. He was buried in a tomb owned by a politician, one who might have spoken out and saved him if he hadn't been too afraid to do it. She slipped the silver chain around her neck again. The story should have ended there. But three days later, Eli raised Yashua to life again. No other god has ever done anything like it. She smiled, hoping that the girl could understand the importance of what she was saying. But that's how Eli works, Jenny. He takes the hopeless causes, and he brings life and victory where before there was only death. Tears welled up in the girl's eyes. But why didn't he fix it before it was hopeless? She pointed at the yew tree. Why didn't he just rescue Yashua, instead of making him go through all that pain? Looking in the girl's eyes, Sasha knew that it wasn't the Lord's pain that she was asking about. There were a dozen answers she could have given, but she chose one that seemed the most relevant to Jenny's real question. I think because he knew going through that pain would help Yashua help others, she said, her voice steady and thoughtful. When the Lord suffered, it connected him to all of us who have ever suffered in this life. 
It gave him the experience to identify with us, to know what we're going through. She squeezed the girl's hand again. Pain is a powerful teacher. It can make us more compassionate to the people around us if we let it, if we don't wall ourselves off from our emotions for fear of dealing with it. Sasha thought of Fiona, feeling a rush of pride at how her lover had finally overcome the barriers inside her. She had a long way to go yet, but Fiona was on the road to healing, and Sasha knew that she would be more charitable now to those who had suffered the sort of pain she had suffered. Her eagerness to help Abby had been proof enough of that. Yes, Fiona wanted revenge on Victor for killing her mother, but she was driven at least as much by her need to protect another girl from falling prey to Victor's psychotic rage. The girl nodded slowly, understanding dawning on her face. You have to know the disease before you can cure it. That's it, Sasha agreed quietly. And the only way to understand pain is to live it. Jenny's eyes drifted to the far end of the room, then back to Sasha. Do you think that's what Eli's doing with me? That he's making me somebody who can help other people? Sasha smiled. That's partly up to you. But if that's what you want, yes, I think he'll do it. The girl closed her eyes and leaned back again, the tension slipping from her shoulders. Then maybe it will all be worth it, she whispered. A few minutes later, Jenny drifted off to sleep, looking much more peaceful than she had before. Sasha took the silver yew tree between her fingers once more, bowed her head, and prayed. And that's the end of Chapter 52. Come back next time, when Brian, Fiona, and Daniel discover what's happened to Miriam, and Sasha learns who she's really protecting. Teresa Nielsen Hayden said, Writer, it's not an occupation, it's a compulsion. So let's see what I've been compelled to do this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of November 20th through November 26th. I wrote 964 words this week, over the course of 1.25 hours, for an average of 771 words per hour. I wrote on 3 out of 7 days this week. This was the week of the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S., so I took some downtime to spend with friends and loved ones. I spent a couple of days working on the podcast— a couple more working on scripts for the podcast, and then worked on edits for another one of Abigail Hilton's stories. It's called Lullaby, and it takes place in the same world as her talking animal fantasy novel, Hunter's Unlucky. I read the first part of the story on Wednesday night, and it was one of the most moving things I've read in a long time. You can find it in a book called Lullaby and Other Stories from Lydian, which is probably going to be on sale by the time you hear this. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082 
followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.